going through the book of Philippians, and if you've got your Bible, head over to Philippians 2. That's where we're going to be this morning. Um, and as you're getting there, I want to encourage you to be reading through Philippians. Because the danger could be that you would show up on a Sunday morning like this and, oh, great, we're going to go through a book of the Bible. The pastor's going to tell me everything I need to know about that book, and then I can go home. That's not going to happen. They give me 25 minutes. And I have been trying to get more than 25 minutes for the last four years. But they give me 25 minutes to share my perspective and, and the application out of God's word. But there is so much more in there. So I would really encourage, man, start reading through Philippians. If you haven't already, start in chapter 1, read a chapter a day, a few verses a day. And that will help you as you begin to walk through Philippians with the rest of us as a church. Seeing what God would speak to you, what God would show you, what God would teach you, and what he wants you to apply. So don't wait on me just to show you what, hey, here's, here's some of the things that I'm seeing. Man, dig in, look in Philippians. Like I said, we're going to be in Philippians chapter 2, and I've been doing my study through Philippians. There's a theme throughout chapter 2 specifically that really is highlighted here. That really comes up, and let me kind of explain it this way. Let me put this on the screen. Uh, this is a picture of my two boys. We have three kids. That's Connor and Cole. Their first time ever to Disney World was last year. And you need to know, for the last 10 years, Becky and I have been married 10 years, and we have done Disney a lot. That was the first time ever with our kids, though. I mean... It was, it was known in the household that we love Disney and we go to Disney. We never, ever, 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 ever under any circumstances take our children, though. That changed last year. People started to look at us funny. They started to talk about us behind our backs, which, hey, don't care what you think. Disney's a lot more fun without kids. And so, so we decided it's time. Let's finally take our kids to Disney. So last year we told them they were so excited. They couldn't believe it. They had a countdown going all the way until the time that we finally got to go. The car ride there was just them singing Disney songs. We get to the hotel, and they're talking about Disney. We get them the, the ears, and they are pumped about finally, finally, finally being in Disney. So our first day, first day in Magic Kingdom, first day in the park, we, we get on the tram, get it on the monorail and everything. We get our, and they are just, as you can tell, just grinning ear to ear. And I'm having this cool dad moment, like, my kids are finally ready for Disney. I'm so happy. So we get there, and we take this picture, because they are just thrilled. I'm like, right before, wait, 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 before you go, before we go and do everything, let me at least just capture that moment of bliss and joy and pure happiness. Truly the, the greatest place, or the happiest place on earth. So we take that picture. Now, what that picture does not show is what happened five minutes after that picture was taken. <laughs> five minutes after that picture was taken, we start walking down Main Street, and I start hearing, I'm hungry. I'm like, we just got here. You're going to have to wait a little bit. We get not even to the end of Main Street, and it's, Daddy, carry me. My feet hurt. And I'm like, this is going to be a long day. Right? And all of a sudden, those things start to happen. I'm hungry. I'm tired. It's hot. Can we stop? Will you hold me? Daddy, put me on your shoulders. I can't do this anymore. This is one of those things. We hadn't even gotten to a ride yet. <laughs> so I'm like, okay, okay. So I pull out the map, and it says, okay, we've got to do, like, the, the big ones. You know, like the Peter Pans, the small world. Do those first. So we start heading that direction, whining all the way. And as we get there, my children experience something they've never experienced to this scale in their lives before, ever. Waiting in line. <laughs> To this point of my children's life, the biggest line they've experienced is Chick-fil-A's drive-thru. That's it. <laughs> and now we're in Disney World 
with lines wrapped around all sorts of things waiting to do this ride. So we get in line and, and they see people getting on the ride and my kids are like, well, why can't we go? And it's like, well, there's something called waiting. We must wait before we can get on. Well, I don't want to wait. I was like, me neither, but we're stuck here and I'm stuck with you apparently. So here we go. Well, how long's the wait? And I look over at the little clock and it says, 45 minutes, what? <laughs> so you can imagine that that being about the first 15 minutes of our journey into Disney, the complaints just got bigger and bigger and bigger. And here's what was interesting about it. It started with my two young toddlers, which is understandable. I mean, toddlers whine, they complain. We almost expect that. But what's interesting is it spread. All of a sudden, I found myself, I so don't want to be here. I looked over at my wife and says, how much longer do we have to be doing that? Do you see why we don't take our kids to Disney? <laughs> Case in point. Do you understand? And, and all of a sudden, I noticed it was spreading through our whole family. Collins, who was one at the time, doesn't even talk, and she had a scowl on her face. Just like, you're whining, but you're not even talking. How is that even possible? <laughs> it spread through our whole family, and all of a sudden, we're in the happiest place on earth, but we're all complaining about all kinds of different things, aren't we? Complaining is very natural. Nobody has to tell you to complain. We just do it. You don't have to think twice about complaining because there's always something to complain about. I want you to think through the last 24 hours, just the last 24 hours, right? Don't say anything out loud. That'd be too convicting for a Sunday morning. I get it. So the last 24 hours, I just want you to think, have you complained? I'm not even going to be general, but I'm going to give you some specifics. Have you complained about the weather? Have you complained about traffic? Have you complained about finances? Have you complained about food? Have you complained about the person sitting next to you? <laughs> Have you complained about anybody else? <laughs> right? See, this is the moment where people are like, oh, I'm so glad you're here for this sermon today. Right? No, we complain. In fact, research has been done on complaining and negativity. And here's the average. The average American in one minute of conversation complains at least one time. On average, on average, for every minute of conversation, there is at least one complaint. And we have a lot of conversations, don't we? A lot of minutes of dialogue and conversing with one another. On average, for every minute we talk, we complain at least one time. It comes, unfortunately, natural to us. But we've almost made excuses for it, like, well, there's a time and a place to complain, right? Like, well, doesn't complaining actually get things done? Doesn't complaining cause change? I'm going to tell you, and what we're going to see in Scripture is not really, not really. Here's what is said in Philippians chapter 2. If you've got your Bibles, head over there. Philippians 2. We're going to start in verse 14. Verse 14, here's what Paul is writing to the early church of Philippi for us to apply as well today. Chapter 2, verse 14 says this. Do everything. Say everything. Do, let's do it one more time because we, we need to make sure we know what that word means, right? Everything we all know means everything. That's right. So do everything without grumbling or arguing. That's not even a full sentence there. There's a comma there, but that's that one verse. Do, what was it again? Do everything without grumbling or arguing. That word grumbling, if you were to look it up in the original Greek language, it literally is almost like, like it's, it's really treating it as a sound. It's like this murmur, this mutter. You know what that sounds like, right? You, yeah, we, we sound like that. That's what that word means. It's to complain and mutter and murmur. It's, it's, it's the complaining. It says do, what was the big word again? Do everything without grumbling or arguing. 
everything. That's a hard one. You mean there's not certain things that we can complain about? Like, surely there's a list of things that are okay to give complaints on. Surely that's somewhere, but no, Paul is saying everything. Do everything without grumbling or arguing or complaining. And he begins to, to say why. Verse 15 begins to answer the, the because or the so that. Here's what it says, verse 15. So that, here's why, you may become blameless and pure, children of God without fault in, your warped, in a warped and crooked generation. Then you will shine among them like stars in the sky as you hold firmly to the word of life. He says, so that you'll be different. In a world, in a generation that is, he said, warped and crooked, and in a dark generation, when we choose not to complain, not to argue, not to grumble, we obviously stand out. He says, live in such a way, talk in such a way, portray yourself in such a way, so that, in his words here, so that you will shine among them like stars in the sky. So here's what I want us to do this morning. It does not work to, to read a passage like this and say, don't complain. Stop complaining. Got it? Everybody nods like this. Great, let's have popcorn and go home. That does not work at all. Paul even knows that doesn't work to just say, well, stop complaining or don't complain, grumble, and argue about things. We need really a strategy behind it. We need a why. We need the how as well. Because what doesn't work, there's usually two sides of complaining that we fall in of, well, I'll stop complaining when I don't have anything to complain about. Like my strategy was great. Well, I'll complain less as long as everything else is going great. The less I have to complain about, well, then the less I'll complain. And that's not the way this works. Not at all. It really is about perspective. Because for Paul, let me remind you, if you weren't here last week, Paul is writing from prison. He is in chains. He has lost his freedom. And he's the one writing, do, what was it again? Do everything. I mean, you mean prison's not on that list? Come on. If we're going to complain about anything, if Paul had a right to complain about anything, being in prison surely would have made the top list, the top 10 list. But even in his situation, in his circumstance, he says, do everything without grumbling or complaining or arguing. So it's not, a strategy is not, well, once things go better, once all of this, all of the stuff gets fixed, once those people around me Stop giving me things to complain about, then I will be able to stop complaining. No, and Paul's saying, no, it starts here with me. It begins with me. And it can't be about our environments. It can't be about the other people around us. Choosing to complain less is just that. We have to choose and have a strategy on how to do that. Because like I said, just saying stop complaining doesn't work. Or even complain less doesn't work. So we're going to walk through a quick strategy, a plan that we see throughout Philippians and in Scripture that is going to help us complain less even when there's still a lot to complain about. Does that make sense? The strategy of how to complain less even though there is still plenty of things to complain about. The first part of this has everything to do with perspective. And here, here's kind of the statement I want you to remember is, if I can change it, then I will. Right? If you can do something about it, if the thing that you, want, that you are complaining about, if you can change it, then change it. Do something about it. But if you can't change it, which is usually where we live, we don't have a lot within our control when you look at the grand scheme of things. If I can't change it, then I'm going to change my perspective. So if you can change it, great. Do something about it. Change instead of complain. But if you can't change it, if it's outside of your control, then change your perspective. I want you to see how this works out with Paul. If you go to chapter 1, he begins to set up his current situation. 
And he explains his perspective. We would expect, I would expect, man, if you're in prison, un, uh, and unlawfully if you're in prison, be just because you're preaching about Jesus, there's a lot to complain about. But look at Paul's perspective. Chapter 1 out of Philippians, verse 12. He's writing to the early church. He says, now I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me, me being in chains, me losing my freedom, me in prison because of preaching the gospel, what has happened to me, his current situation, look, has actually served to advance the gospel. As a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I'm in chains for Christ. And because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters have become more confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. There's a huge word in here, actually. The very first part says that what has happened to me, I want you to know what's happened to me, has actually served to advance the gospel. Here's what that word in our English language does. Actually makes a shift happen. Well, I was going this direction. Actually, that happened. Right? I want you to know what's happened to me being in prison. Most people would complain and be upset and how could this happen? But, but actually, it's advancing the gospel. Do you see what that word actually has done here? Everybody thinks it's going this direction, but actually, and there's a switch, there's a change. For Paul, he's showing a change of perspective. What's happened to me is actually serving to advance the gospel. He could not change the fact that he was in prison, but he could most certainly change his perspective, and that's exactly what he did. Actually, look at what happens. But he goes on. Remember, a couple other things happen here. Look at this next one. He says, as a result, so it's actually doing something for the kingdom, and look at what it is. He said, as a result, it has become clear through the whole palace guard and everyone else that I'm in chains for Christ. Let me ask you this question. Think through it. Paul, yes, is in prison and he's in chains, but who is more of the prisoner? Because Paul's calling on his life was to preach Jesus to everyone who would listen and even those that didn't want to listen. So he would go into a town, he'd start preaching the gospel, some would listen, some would leave. Here's the perspective Paul is taking, choosing to take. This is perfect. I'm chained, and every shift I get new guards that have to come in and sit next to me. It is their job to be next to me. They're not allowed to leave me alone. I'm going to preach until their shift ends, and then I'm going to start all over again with the next batch. I mean, imagine, who's really the prisoner here? These guards come in and are like, oh, we're going to have to hear the whole story again. Someone accept Jesus so we can get this guy to move on. Paul looks at this as a great opportunity. These prison guards are here watching me. It is their job to be near me. They must. They're not allowed to leave, and I get to preach to them all day? Praise Jesus, this is a, an ideal job. <laughs> he thinks this is the greatest thing. That's why it says, I know there's, there's got to be almost a little sarcasm, maybe a little humor in here. Where it's clear throughout the whole palace guard that I'm in chains for Jesus. In other words, everyone has heard the story. Everyone has heard Jesus. They could recite it better than he could at this point. He says, actually, this is working out. I'm doing exactly what God called me to do. And in fact, I've got an audience that can't leave. <laughs> they might literally be chained to me for several hours while I tell them about Jesus and the good news of the gospel. See, what happens is we get ourselves chained to things. Some's our fault, some it's not, some it's just circumstantial and situational. And we allow being chained to things to lead us down a road of complaining. And what Paul is saying is, man, I don't care who I'm chained to. I'm still going to do what I'm supposed to do. So what are you chained to? 
Who are you chained to? And instead of allowing it to be a complaint, actually, what? May there be a shift of perspective. But he even goes further. He says it's not just about the guards. He even says, but other Christians, they become more confident in the Lord because of his example. So right there off the bat, he's saying, here's my current situation, but actually here's what it's doing. Here's my perspective. Did he love being in prison? No. But he changed his perspective. If you can't change it, change your perspective. But if you can, then of course, do something about it. Part one of the strategy. Second part of the strategy is asking this question. Who's the center of the story? Who is the center of the story? If you go back to where we were reading early out of chapter two, do everything without complaining or grumbling and arguing. If you keep reading in that same breath, that same that same paragraph in verse 17, Paul unpacks who this is really about. Because here's the, here's the trouble, is you could find yourself in a situation where finding that other perspective feels impossible. Brian, I mean, yeah, Paul could do it, but in my situation and in my circumstance, there can't be anything good that's coming out. Like, like there's no possible way there's another perspective to find. Well, let me show you what Paul says here, because he speaks to it. Verse 17. But even if, so I would say, even if you can't find that great perspective, but even if, Paul says, I'm being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I am glad and rejoice with all of you. So you too should be glad and rejoice with me. He's talking here and he's referencing some Old Testament laws in in the scripture where they would have sacrifices, right? They would build an altar. They would put the sacrifice on the altar, burn the altar, but then they would also have what's called a drink offering, which is what Paul references here. And they would take a valuable liquid, a perfume or a wine or an oil, something of value, high value, and they would just pour it on the altar. Now, if you pour something that's liquid onto something that's hot, what happens? What happens? Right, you have steam, right? It evaporates and goes into steam. So the, the metaphor, the visual here is when you pour a drink offering on the altar that the steam, as it evaporates, it's a sacrifice to give up something of value and it is pleasing. It's what scripture would call a pleasing aroma to God. Now, did God need that? No, of course not. That's the idea of offering and sacrifices. We give up something for, some, for someone else. So what Paul is saying here is my life is a sacrifice. My life is a drink offering because here's where we and Paul could be well this is a waste right I'm stuck in a spot that is just wasting my life away I'm wasting my talents I'm wasting my gifts Paul who's in prison is saying could be saying God I could be anywhere else preaching and I'm why am I stuck here wasting away in this prison couldn't I be of better use somewhere else that's the rational side of things and sometimes we complain under the excuse of being rational. Well, this makes more sense. Why is it not this instead? It would have made more human sense for Paul to not be in prison, but go all throughout the world, the known world, preaching the gospel. That would have made more sense to us. But Paul says it's not about what I think, and it's not about me. He says, you know what? Even if my life is like this, being poured out like a drink offering, so be it. I'll rejoice in that. He says something very similar in Romans. I don't have to turn there. Let me read this to you. Romans chapter 12, verse 1. Paul says again, he says, therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is true worship. See, for Paul, the sacrifice was not his eventual martyrdom, his eventual execution. 
His true sacrifice was his life, a living sacrifice, even if my life is poured out, even if it feels like my life is a waste, even if it feels like my situation is a waste for me. He said, it's not about me. See, and that's the difference. Who's the center of the story? If I am the center of the story, then guess what? I have every right to complain because it's my preference. It's my opinion. It's what I want when I want it, right? When it's not about me, I have no grounds for complaining. So Paul makes it clear. He says, even if I'm a drink offering, in other words, if it's all about Jesus, then I have no room to complain. Who's the spotlight on? If it's on you, you're going to complain. If it's on me, I'm going to complain. But if we keep the spotlight on Jesus, if he is the center of the story, then we don't complain. Jesus, it's whatever you want. Whatever you choose to do with me, that's up to you. I won't complain about it because it's not my call. So if you can change it, then change it. If you can't change it, change your perspective. You've got to ask the right question. Who is the center of this story? Is it about me or is it going to be about him? And if it is about him, then we can't complain. Even if we are poured out like a drink offering, it's got to be about him. The other one is training your brain. Training your brain. So here's our, here's our strategies is if you can change it, then change it. If you can't change it, change your, change your, what was it, perspective. Then the strategy of asking this question of who is the center of the story Who's at the center of the story? Who's the spotlight on? If it's me, I'm going to complain. If it's Jesus, I have no grounds to complain because he can do whatever he wants with me and everyone else. That's, on, that's totally up to him. But we do need to train our brain, specifically train our brain to see good. Train your brain to see good. Stanford University did some research, like I said earlier, of this negativity and, and the idea of complaining. And they found something pretty interesting. Here's what they came up with. They said, complaining actually rewires our brains for negativity. So the more we complain, guess what we will do more of? Complain. The more negativity and the more negative we are, the more negativity we see. The more we complain, the more things we find to complain about. It rewires our brain for negativity and complaining. But Look at what they say, too. He said, it's not just about the negativity and the complaining and the rewiring. He said, but also complaining, habitual complaining damages the areas of our brain that are responsible for two things. You ready for this? Problem solving and intelligent thought. I love that. That's fantastic. So the more we complain, the areas of our brain that are damaged are the areas of problem solving and intelligent thought. So what does that tell you about people that complain a lot? I won't say it on stage, but I'll let you put two and two together, right? That's, that's what happens in our minds. That's the way our brain's working. And Paul knew this way before Stanford University knew this and saying, that's why we can't go down the road of complaining because it's going to damage our minds. It is going to rewire our brains. And in fact, scripture even tells us this, Psalm 103, one and two, basically says the same thing. It says, let all that I am praise the Lord with my whole heart. I will praise his holy name. Let all that I am praise the Lord. May I never forget, look at this, the good things he has done for me, the good things he does for me, the good things that he has promised me. So we have to train our brains to see the good. The bad is easy to find. The negative is easy to discover. It's always there. There's always things that we can complain about, that we can find to complain about. But are we training our brains to see the good.
Because here's what tends to happen. We all fall into this, right? Complaining comes naturally. We see the problem. We see the injustice. We see the issue. We see the wrong that has been done to us. And so we have to make sure not just I know it, not just the people around me know it, but I need everybody in the world to know it. So thank God for Facebook that I can put all of my complaints in one place and they can all see my complaints at the same time and praise Jesus, good comes from that. That was a lot of sarcasm, just to make sure you're following me there. <laughs> a whole lot of sarcasm. But we love that. Don't we? We, 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 oh, I just want my voice to be heard. I just need other people to see what I see. No, that's not how it works. <laughs> when we find these things to complain about, we find ourselves needing, we have this inner need to make sure everybody knows about it. Did you know that there's no biblical basis for venting in the Bible? It's not in there. I so wish it was in there, but it's not. Now, does that mean there's no place for between you and a spouse and you and a close friend to have some much-needed conversation and to get some, see, have at it. But that's not what Paul is talking about here. He's saying, don't complain. What was it again? Do everything without grumbling and arguing, without complaining. Train your brain to see good, and it might take a long time, and it, it's not a, well, you just got to practice it or work at it. No, I, I use that word train very intentionally. You have to train your brain to see the good. I did this with my son last night, and I'm going to do it with you. We're going to do a little experiment here. You got that there? Okay. Not a trick question. What do you see? It's a white piece of paper, folks. Are we on the same page? All right. Just check in. Not trying to trick you, I was just making sure we started on the same page. So yes, white piece, white piece of paper, white index card. And then if I do that, what do you see? Ah, yes, of course you would say that. Let me tell you what happened when I did this with Connor. I said, Connor, white piece of paper, right? He said, yeah. I said, now what do you see? He said the exact same thing. He is as smart as every single one. You are as smart as a, six, as a six-year-old. How does that make you feel? I did something else, though. I said, okay, I can see that. I said, Connor, what else do you see? A planet. I'm like, okay. Connor, what else do you see? The moon. Connor, what else do you see? A comet. I'm like, we're on a space theme, apparently. <laughs> what else? A star. I'm like, okay. Anything other than space that you see? He says, a leopard spot. Now we're on an animal theme, okay. What else do you, and, and we went on and on and on, and he had more and more things that he saw, and so then I said, Okay, Connor, let me do this now. And I added a bunch more. I said, Connor, now what do you see? You know what the first thing that he said was? It was not a lot of dots. That's a lot of planets. That's a lot of stars. <laughs> it's, it's the sun and a bunch of the planets going around the sun. <laughs> so often in our adult life, we see something that, oh, that shouldn't be there. That's a problem. That's a blemish on my life. And we focus in on it and we can't get out of whatever that is. And sure, call it what it is. It's a problem. It's an issue. It's a concern. It's an injustice. I'm not saying it's not, but I'm saying how much we focus on that. Instead of asking a follow-up question, okay, I can see that, but what else do you see? And as adults, we don't ask that second question, right? Well, no, that's the problem. And until that problem goes away, it's nothing else. Instead of training our brains to see the good of like, okay, problem, but what else do I see? What else could it be? Oh, there's more of them. 
well, what could that be then? We lose our ability to focus on more than just a problem, which is why we become so good at complaining. So the three strategies for complaining less, even when there's plenty to complain about, is if you can change it, change it. If you can't change it, change your perspective. We ask the question, who's the center of the story? If it's you, you're going to complain. If it's me, I'm going to complain. If it's Jesus, we're not going to be able to complain because he's in charge. He's the king and I'm not. The third one is training your brain to see the good. Sure, call the problem a problem, but also train your brain to see the good. Ask the fall, okay, what else is there? What else do I see? What else can I see? What else can I find? You keep digging to find the good. Here's a very easy way. If you want to write this down, here's some homework for you the week. Read Philippians and then do this. Here's it. Find one good thing about something, fill in the blank, and share it with someone. Who? Find one good thing about your job and share it with who? Find one good thing about the economy and share it with somebody. Find one good thing about your family. Find one good thing about you as an individual. Find one good thing about traffic on 400. You figure that one out, you text me. None of us are perfect. Find one good thing about and tell somebody. And tell somebody. Instead of spewing the complaints and the negativity, what if we began to change the world through encouragement? Change the world the way Paul showed us it could be changed. Because imagine this. Just imagine for a second. Imagine your life without complaining. Kids without complaining. I mean, we're talking about utopia. We know it's never going to happen, but we can at least think about it. A workplace without complaints. Yeah, a church without complaints. Amen, Jesus. <laughs> I'm kidding, sort of. Imagine a world without complaints. Now, there's more to it, though. That, that's the how. I, I spent all our time talking about the how, but the why is even more important. I'm going to share it real quick. Because what we've done is I took you through chapter 2, and we started in the middle. Did you know there's a beginning of chapter 2? There's a verse 1, and that's the why. So if you look at verse 1, here's what Paul is saying. Here's how he gets to the don't complaint thing. He says this. He says, therefore, if you have any encouragement from being, and say this word with me, being what? united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, look at this, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. He said, if you're looking for encouragement, it's going to require unity. You see, understand, Complaining and unity cannot coexist. You cannot have a fully unified family where there's a culture of complaining. You cannot have a workplace or a business where everyone is on the same page, saying the same thing, aiming at the same thing, unified together, if it also has a culture of complaining. They cannot coexist. So Paul starts chapter 2 saying unity is key. You must be of one mind, of one heart, of one spirit, this one voice. You have to stay and remain unified. Something unbelievably strange happened to me yesterday. I was out of town. I was in another state, and uh, we stopped to get some food, and we stopped at Chick-fil-A. And at the Chick-fil-A here in Dawsonville, I'm a pretty big deal in uh, the Chick-fil-A here. <laughs> I don't know if you know that, but I am. Because, and here's how I know that. Is I'm, I think you know, Tony uh, has put like a picture of me in the back or something, because every time I order, every single time I'm there, I don't know the person that's taking my order, but every time I order, I say thank you. Do you know what they tell me? No. They do that to you too? 
I thought that was a me thing. Seriously, I don't feel so special anymore. Every time I get a refill and I say thank you, what do they say? My pleasure. So I go to this Chick-fil-A out of town, another state over, and I order my food, and I couldn't believe it. You know what they said? My pleasure. I was like, how does that even happen? Has my Dawsonville Chick-fil-A sent you a message that I was coming and that you needed to, to say nice things and treat this man with some extra special care? I went and got a refill after I, I finished eating, and you know what they told me again? My pleasure. How do they do that? It's not an accident, right? Yes, they've trained their people well. There's unity. There's common voice. There's common culture. You cannot have unity if you also have complaining. So here's the middle part. Here's where this all ties together. If you want unity, how do we get it? Verse 3 answers it. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, say humility. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interest of others. In the same, in your relationships, in all of your relationships, look to your right and look to your left real quick. You see those people next to you? That counts as relationships, whether you know them or not. The people you're going to see today, that counts as relationships. You interact with people. In your relationships with one another, have the same attitude of mind Christ Jesus had. If you keep reading through verse 11, it explains his attitude and his mindset that he would humble himself and put himself on a cross for each and every one of us. Unity is the key. Unity is the goal. In order to have unity, you must have humility. How do we live out humility with not complaining? The strategies for complaining less when you have a lot, of, a lot to complain about really comes down to humility, but the result we get is unity. Instead of thinking about your life without complaining, flip it around. Think of your life with perfect unity. Think of your family completely unified. Think of your business completely unified. Think of a community that rallies together and has true unity. Paul understood the importance of unity, especially in the church. He said, if you're going to have it, you got to have humility. Practice humility by having a strategy to complain less. When I think of our last four years, unity has been the key around here. Trust me, there was a lot to complain about when you do church and a movie theater for three and a half years. There's a lot to complain about. And I get the question now that we're in a building, oh man, you must just love it, it must be great. I was like, yeah, but there's still things to complain about. Like our AC doesn't work that great all the time. Half of you do this and half of you bring coats and you dress in layers when you come here. Yeah, I get it. You pull up and there's a really pretty blue on the outside of the building. Yeah, I see it. Of course there's things to always complain about. Well, moving forward, where are we going? What are we going to fix and do? I said, here's the future of MLC, I'll tell you. Unity. Unity in Christ. That's it. It doesn't matter how many seats we fill up. It doesn't matter when, when we move into the back part of the warehouse. It's more life change, and that happens because of unity. Four years ago, a little over four years ago, there was a small group of people huddled around in a circle as we were getting ready to launch our first service in the theater. There was a passage that I read out of Ephesians that speaks to what happens when we stand together in unity. It says, Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. The future of our church, may it be that of unity. May we continue to have humility, not just in our church, but in our homes and in our community, so that we see life change happen.
so that we see God do immeasurably more than anything we could ever ask or imagine or do on our own. And a very real and tangible way to begin to see that happen more and more is to eliminate the complaining, as Paul said. Do everything without grumbling and arguing and complaining. And we will find ourselves in a place of humility, and then we will see the result of true unity. Let's pray together. God, thank you so much for what you have done and what you are doing and where you're leading us. And at the, the root of all of that, of course, is your son Jesus and our unity along with you. God, may we continue to have that unity. May that be what we always fight for and hold on to. Not that we always agree. We can disagree, but still have unity. And God, for those in this room that are struggling to have the unity that you talk about in your word, may they find that unity beginning with humility. That we would give up our, our right to be right. That we would give up some of our wants and desires and our preferences and our opinions so that there can be true unity. God, I pray that your spirit would prompt us this week to focus on the good, to walk through the strategy of complaining less, even in a world where there's plenty to complain about, that we would change our perspective, that we would focus on you as the center of the story, not us, and that we would keep looking for what you are doing, keep looking for the good, because it is there. And God, in those moments where we can't see anything good in our current situation, when we cannot find another perspective, when all we see is wrong, may we rest in the fact that your son Jesus died for us. That's good enough. That is so good enough. In the moments we see nothing else good, may we always remember what you have done for us. In Jesus' name, amen.